Hi, I'm Dan Primack, and welcome to Axios Recap, presented by Bridge Bank. Today is Tuesday, September 22nd. Tesla stock is down, median home prices are up, and we're focused on the business of immigrant detention. Last week, a nurse named Dawn Wooten blew the whistle on what she claims is systemic medical neglect and malpractice at an immigrant detention facility in Georgia where she used to work. Part of her claims, contained in a complaint to ICE, are about COVID-19, that the jail failed to prepare properly, not doing things like separating detainees or providing them with PPE, and also that the jail slow-walked testing in order to artificially depress its number of positive cases. But most explosively, outside of the coronavirus, Wooten also claimed that some detainees had been given forced hysterectomies. Now, at this moment, we do not know if the nurse's claims are true. The physician allegedly involved in hysterectomies, for example, denies the allegations. What we do know, though, is that around 70% of all immigrant jails, including the one where Wooten worked, are run by private companies and that oversight of them can be lax. Moreover, the profit incentives can be perverse. The company for which Wooten worked, LaSalle Corrections, reportedly gets around $60 per inmate per day. But then you've got to subtract overhead costs like food and in-house medical care. The more medical services or products provided by the jail, the less money it ends up making. We want to go deeper with Jonathan Blitzer, a New Yorker staff writer who's covered the immigrant detention business for years. That conversation in 15 seconds. We're joined now by Jonathan Blitzer, a staff writer at The New Yorker. So, Jonathan, let's just start with the news here. There were these reports of non-consensual hysterectomies allegedly performed on women at the detention center in Georgia. When you dug into those claims, what did you find? Well, at this point, I mean, the process is going to be long and slow going in terms of substantiating those specific claims. Obviously, those are explosive claims. I know there are a number of investigators, congressional investigators, agency investigators, the whistleblower and organizations associated with this whistleblower are trying to dig deeper on some of those specific claims. So as of yet, all we know is that a number of detainees at that facility, as well as the whistleblowing nurse who came forward, have said that there were instances of non-consensual hysterectomies. That's the extent of what we know to date. But that, to be clear, is one part of a pretty damning report about all kinds of abuses at that facility. Jonathan, when I read your reporting, not just this story, but others too, there seems to be this running theme about how hard it is to implement oversight because these are private facilities. Why is that the case? Absolutely. It's a great question. The fact of immigration detention in the U.S., like the fact of detention generally in the U.S., is that it is a major boon to private corporations. So 70% of all detainees being held under the auspices of ICE's custody are held in privately run facilities. This is an industry that's worth $4 billion a year. And essentially, the whole premise is that the profit margins for these privately run facilities are dependent on their accepting money from the government that is generally parceled out on a per diem basis per detainee. And the way that they make that profitable for themselves, these corporations, is they really skimp on all sorts of basic things that you'd expect anyone to have access to, namely healthcare, but other things. And so for years and years, I mean, this is not a new thing under Trump, although obviously it's taken on kind of these particularly gruesome proportions under the current administration. But for years and years, going back now decades, 
there have been just reports of abuse after abuse in privately run facilities. And then in turn, those private corporations contract out with, for example, private medical providers and so on. And so you have this kind of vast web of services that are involved. It's hard for an agency to oversee it all, particularly because ICE isn't terribly interested in overseeing it all. ICE has been neglectful for years and years. There are documented cases of ICE's own abuses. And so I think there has to be the actual institutional will to get to the bottom of what's happening. And it's never materialized. Let me ask on the way this works, as you were talking about kind of this per diem, per detainee. But if, for example, you are going to contract out to a private medical services provider, something on the outside, something you can't do in-house, right? To be honest, like these hysterectomies, whether consensual or non-consensual, who pays for that? Here's how I understand it. The facility in question here, the Irwin County Detention Center, which is run by a private corporation called LaSalle Corrections, that, according to recent studies, that corporation receives about $60 a day per detainee from ICE, from the government. That money goes toward things like food, basic provisions of services inside the facility, and on-site medical attention. Off-site medical attention, which is what's at the heart of this particular allegation, is dealt with through private providers. And then Irwin or LaSalle basically bills ICE for those procedures? It's hard to know exactly what's going on in the context of this particular case. So it's unclear. But, you know, in theory, you could have an individual doctor, for example, performing operations as a way of being able to bill more. And so that would at least in a kind of general way explain that sort of motivation. But, you know, for my purposes, I got to say, given the broader context of what's at issue here, the treatment of detainees in ICE custody, the treatment of detainees in ICE custody in the middle of a global pandemic, the fact of the complete domination of the detention industry by private corporations. To me, a lot of the most bracing stuff in this recent set of allegations, obviously the hysterectomies are crazy to think about. We'll have to learn more over time. But also a lot of the other things in these complaints that went to the DHS inspector general are things that are consistent with allegations that have been pretty consistent all over ICE facilities across the country. Systematic abuse, medical neglect, deliberate cases of ignoring detainees who are worried about the transmission of COVID. I'm wondering, there was a move, I guess, probably at the end of the Obama administration by DOJ, specifically to kind of for-profit prisons, you know, criminal prisons, to stop using privately run federal prisons, at least. Was there a similar move when it came to ICE facilities or not necessarily? Because some of the operators do both. I'm so glad you asked about that, because it's something that's not gotten proper attention now. That's right. In the summer of 2016, DOJ makes this move to get the Board of Prisons to rely less on private detention in the criminal context. There was a parallel move at the Department of Homeland Security at the time. And the Secretary of Homeland Security at the time, Jay Johnson, basically commissioned a small group of then current and former DHS officials to look into whether or not it would make sense to make a similar move in the context of immigration detention. And the overall conclusion that came out in the fall of 2016 was that the privately run detention centers that this commission studied were on the whole run much more poorly and had much deeper problems in terms of medical care and other abuses than facilities run directly by the government. And so the general conclusion reached by this particular commission was, yeah, we really should find ways to end or at least phase out the use of private detention in the immigration context. Of course, we're talking about October 2016. Those recommendations were interrupted by the election. And immediately upon Donald Trump's election, not only did you have a kind of complete about face in terms of what the government's general priorities are with regard to detention, but in a very telling development, 
you saw the stocks of private prison companies soar after the election of Donald Trump because that was so much a centerpiece in his campaign and in his platform as president to increase detention, to throw more people in prisons in the criminal context, in detention centers in the immigration. There has been a defund ICE hashtag, which has been similar to the you know defund the police hashtag. From your perspective, it's a little different than police, where the argument isn't necessarily, you know, spend less money, it's spend the money differently. When it comes to ICE, though, it seems a little bit more binary. Would spending more, increasing ICE's budget, increasing the amount that, say, given to a center per detainee, would that help this process? Or would defunding help this process? This is a complex issue and has always been politically quite fraught. The idea of defund ICE or abolish ICE or defund DHS. The defund DHS stuff is the stuff I take more seriously because we're talking kind of more systemically about resources in the department. I have to say the current administration and the particular leadership at the department now more than ever have basically offered, I think, the strongest argument to date for the need at the very least to defund aspects of DHS's mission or at least to make congressional appropriations contingent on DHS being able to prove that it's responsible in administering certain aspects of the immigration enforcement operation. And so I think for years and years, ICE has basically billed much more from Congress and has gotten much more funds than it ever was supposed to. And there's really never been that much thoughtfulness or attention paid to the need to curb some of that funding. So I think at this point, at the very least, if Congress is going to continue to appropriate money for the use of immigration detention and immigration enforcement, I do think there need to be some sort of standards that have to be met in order for that money to be doled out. I do think it's time to at the very least ask if there are better ways to be spending that money and to be holding the agencies at DHS accountable. Jonathan Blitzer, whose work you can read in The New Yorker. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Welcome back. What we're watching today is the number of Americans who have died after contracting the coronavirus, as we've now passed the very grim milestone of 200,000. In short, it's catastrophic. Three times more Americans than died in the entire Vietnam War, 65 times how many died during the September 11th attacks, and more people per capita than in all but 10 other countries in the entire world. We're also continuing to watch Tropical Storm Beta, which made landfall in Texas last night with sustained winds of 45 miles per hour, leading to flooding in places like Houston. It's a slow mover with expectations that it'll dump upwards of a foot of water in some parts of Texas and Louisiana over the next 24 hours. Finally, we are continuing to watch the politics of the Supreme Court, which we talked about a bit on yesterday's show. The latest is that President Trump plans to name his nominee on Saturday, and that person will then almost certainly receive a Senate confirmation hearing over the objection of Democrats, with Utah Republican Mitt Romney announcing that he will vote for the nominee if he finds her to be qualified. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Hobbit Day, and we'll be back tomorrow with another Axios Recap.